This morning I'm going to begin a two-part series. It's this Sunday and next Sunday, and it's quite different from what we normally do here at Crosspoint. What we normally do and what we will resume with early next year is we pick a book of the Bible and move straight through it. Sometimes, though, it's important and necessary to give you topical, very practical teaching regarding things that are going on in our lives. A few months ago, I had the privilege of talking to one of our mom's groups that meets here in the worship center about once a month on a Wednesday night, and they wanted to talk to me about raising kids in this rapidly changing toxic culture that we've created in our country. I was honored to do so, and any time I talk about parenting, I'm reminded about the old seminary joke. If you've been here a long time, you've heard me tell it before, bear with me. A seminarian completed his degree. He was very proud of his Master of Divinity, so he, with all the biblical knowledge he had gained, was encouraged to write a book about parenting. This, of course, before he had children. He had a degree and no kids, and that emboldened him, and he wrote a book called Ten Commandments for Parents. Then he had a child, and he reworked the content based on his real-world experience and rewrote it and entitled it Ten Suggestions for Parents. And then he had a second child, and the final edition of that book is entitled Ten Humble Ideas for Fellow Strugglers in the Adventure of Parenting. That's how I approach you anytime I talk about parenting, so it has always been. My children are practically raised. I have two sons, 25 and 22 years old. I texted them this morning a little note of gratitude of how easy they have made it for me to be a dad, for my wife to be a mom, and how I'm always able to hold my head up when I think about them. But I offer this in the spirit of a fellow disciple of Jesus, someone who's learning from Jesus and doing his best to teach those things and to share them with his children. Because, like you, I don't know how much time I have, but if the actuarial tables are true, there will be, hopefully, blessedly, a time where my wife and I are no longer in their lives, and they will need to walk the road alone without their parents. We want them to walk that road then and now with the Lord Jesus. Our culture's changing faster than any culture probably has changed. It's technology that's done it. It has not only accelerated the speed of change, it has instituted and catalyzed change itself. Kids, though, haven't changed. What the Bible says, God who made people understands human beings and human nature, how it was made by God to glorify Him, how it was corrupted and twisted by sin. God understands all of that, and here is His direct admonition and instruction to those of you who, like me, have the privilege of being parents. It's found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 4, here is your sacred responsibility. In fact, Read this with me, the whole church, please. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In the context of the ancient world, that in itself was revolutionary. The ancient world was extremely vertical. In the Greco-Roman world, parents had pretty much absolute ownership over their children had a great deal of legal protection to treat their children any way they pleased. So Paul says, parents, as you live with your children, do not provoke them to anger. 
Do not embitter them. Do not be harsh with them or the accompanying ideas from Paul's writings regarding marriage and parenting. You are to live your parenthood in a way that does not discourage or provoke your children toward anger and bitterness. Instead, he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And those two words are paired together for Paul to explain that it is your responsibility to do everything to train and equip and nourish and bring up through warning, through correction, through positive teaching, through the power of your own example, all of those things at once. Everything a gifted coach or teacher does, setting down the do's and the don'ts, living it out by example, providing practical instruction that can be inspected and seen and experienced by the person doing the learning, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Jesus at the center, Jesus as the foundation. How do you do that? Well, there's a very well-known Bible verse in 1 Corinthians 13 that speaks about faith, hope, and love. It says, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And I think faith, hope, and love is a simple way for you to remember how to parent your kids to follow Jesus. You see that giant set of notes in your bulletin? Do not be afraid. We're only going as far as faith today. Next week, hope and love. But these three words, faith, Hope and love are guardrails and targets for people who want to raise their children to follow Jesus. A very simple way for you to remember how to parent your kids to follow the Lord. First, though, a very, very important qualification. If in any of this you experience shame and guilt, that's not my intent and that is not the intent of your Heavenly Father. Let me explain. Shame and guilt are natural consequences of coming up short and sinning. But they're not God's tools. The Bible says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. God deals through conviction is the biblical word. Here's the difference. Shame and guilt make you feel worthless. Shame and guilt make you regret the past so much that you just want to get down on the ground and quit, to surrender, to not begin again. Conviction can be painful in its own way. Conviction is very, very different, though, in the effect that it has on you. Conviction is a spiritual gift from God by which you realize that you've walked away from God, that you're not following in His path, and the realization is painful to you. But that pain doesn't make you feel worthless. That pain doesn't make you want to quit. That pain motivates you like the prodigal son in the parable to return to your father, to turn away from what you've done wrong, from the mistakes that you've made, from the sins you've committed, and return to the God who loves you, to return to walking in his way. So you should, I hope, I pray, experience at least in some point in these two two weeks a measure of conviction. For you say to yourself, I've come up short, I've done the wrong thing, I've missed an opportunity, I've squandered time. Just this morning, I was reading my Bible and journaling a little bit, and it came to me, something that I was taught years ago, believe it or not, I was taught by one of my own sons. And it dawned on me this morning as I read and prayed that he'd been right all along and that I'd missed blessed opportunities by not taking 
his youthful wisdom into account. That's in the journal as a new conviction, but I'm not ashamed and guilty about it. I'm resolved to walk forward toward God in his path. So you shouldn't feel any shame and guilt. Parenting is filled with enough guilt. We are driven by enough shame in our culture. Every parent, at least every parent who genuinely loves their children, has regrets. I'm enormously grateful to God for the lives of my two boys. They've given their mother and I a great deal to be proud of. But I could sit down and in five minutes fill up a notebook with regrets that I have. Opportunities that I missed, time that I did not take, times that I have been harsh when I should have been loving, times when I've talked when I should have been listening. That's just part of being a normal, sinful, weak, fallible, often ignorant person. But you have a great God in heaven, and his favorite way to explain himself and his character is to explain to you that he is your heavenly father. And if anybody knows parenting, it's the God who made us all. So let's begin on the journey. Let's not waste a moment of time with guilt and regret. Let's move forward. Let's talk first about faith. When I speak to you about faith, three very simple ideas, three very simple applications from Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but... Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Here's the curious thing about the Bible when it comes to parenting. You're given specific directions, but you'll notice Paul then moves on to a whole other topic. How you are to do this has to be drawn from all of Scripture. And if you read Paul's letters to the first pastors and to the first churches, it's very obvious that Paul had in mind that this was going to be lived out day by day as people taught and, taught and admonished and encouraged and mentored one another. So three very simple explanations, again, light on exposition, long on application for these next two weeks to be as practical and pointed as I can. The first thing you need to do is live the faith. Because nothing, parents, is more important than your personal example. Look with me, please, in Proverbs 20, verse 7. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 20, verse 7, I read this. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children, notice the word, after him. The picture is really clear. An adult has decided to live a life of integrity, a life before the face of God, a life that takes into conscious practice that God is alive and He calls all people eventually to give an account to Him. That's integrity, living according to the truth of who God is and what God has said. The righteous who walks in His integrity has this effect. His children are blessed after Him. That's the most important thing. If you take nothing else from this morning, there's going to be quite a bit here, but if you take nothing else from the sermon this morning, please understand this. Nothing is more important than your personal example. When you live a life of integrity before God, you blaze the trail for them. Dads, you're the point man. 
If you have the blessing of an intact marriage and mom and dad are raising the kids together at home, you as partners, as you walk together in your marriage toward Jesus, you are knocking down obstacles. You are blowing up strongholds. You are clearing the way through the lies of this world, and your children are going to be blessed after you. Very simply, what that means is you want to live the way you want them to live. You live the way you want them to live because our hypocrisy is far more damaging than our ignorance. Your children are ready to hear from you when they ask you a difficult question regarding the faith, regarding God, regarding life, a decision that they have to make that requires a great deal of wisdom. Your children are very well prepared to hear from you, I don't know. I'll give you, give you a clue. They already know that you don't know. They can tell that you're struggling. They can see the fear in their eyes. They know they've put you in over they've put you in over your head with that specific question. Okay? Saying I don't know, saying I got it wrong, saying I've sinned against you, that's life-giving to your children. Your children know you sin. Nobody is more frequent, frequently liable to being a hypocrite as a Christian than people like me, people in public ministry. Here's why. A weak, self-centered understanding says, if I admit to being wrong, I'll destroy my credibility. The opposite is true. When you sin and you know it and they know it, if you will come to them and tell them clearly in the words they can understand at the age they're at. Buddy, when Dad said those things and spoke to you the way I did, that was harsh, that was cruel, that was selfish. That wasn't really about you, that was about me not keeping control of my emotions and acting in anger, and it was wrong. And I've asked God in His mercy to forgive me, and I want to ask you, please, to forgive me too. Those conversations are life-giving to children. I know because I'm a grown man with children of his own. I remember the occasions my dad and I had those conversations where he took the biblical admonition to heart and confessed one of his sins against me. It's made all the difference in the world. Integrity is not perfection. You have to live out the life you want them to live. When you get it wrong, you have to confess to it. Live that the way you want them to live. Do you want your children to be people of prayer? You should pray with them. Not in a way to be seen by them, but you should live your life in a way where they can see you at prayer. Do you want your children to search the Bible out for themselves and have their own relationship with God? It should begin with you. Don't be, a, don't be a hypocrite and a Pharisee that does it only to be seen by them, but make it so natural that you seek God and turn to Him in prayer to his, and to His Word that they just take it for granted. It's one of the great lessons we've had as a family for years, since the many years I've been blessed to be joined to the Maxie family by marriage. One of the many lessons, not my father in this case, that my father-in-law specifically has taught me is in the most mundane circumstances, at the slightest, 
sign of trouble or need, he will stop everything that we're doing, including being in the middle of manual labor and saying, let's just talk, let's take a minute and pray about this. I've seen that in the life of my 22-year-old son. It wasn't so much taught as caught. Cecil lived out his life in a faithful, prayer-centered way in front of my son, and he's so much better for it. You need to decide what kind of life you want your children to have. You need to decide what kind of disciple you want to be. Have you given it much thought? Have you thought about what kind of person you want them to be? At the risk of painting with a broad brush, but after living now in the United States for 17 years, back in the United States, let me tell you at least what it looks like to me for my little cultural seat. At least in suburbia, the vision and the dream of parenting sounds like this. Do well in school, get into a good college, have a good job, own a house, pay your bills. Is that it? Is that enough? Can I suggest to you that some of the most wicked people on earth went to the best schools and have the most important jobs? Can I suggest to you that what will stand in eternity is Christ-like character, not earthly competence and achievement? My kids are both on their way to being college graduates now. They're both headed toward good careers. None of that will matter given the passage of time. The character they shape, the Christ-likeness they form in their own heart that extends into their relationships, that will have more than an earthly effect. That will have an eternal effect. You need to decide what kind of disciple you want to be. Start becoming that disciple yourself and through your integrity, not your perfection, but through your conscious, purposeful integrity to live your life before God, you need to bring your children along. That's living the faith. A second idea regarding the faith is, and this is overlooked by parents, and I'll explain why, you need to transmit the faith as well. You need to embrace teaching the faith of Jesus to your children as your best gift to them. Your teaching, your instruction, Ephesians 6.4 is directed to parents. It's written to a church where there will be partnership and there will be community and there will be mutual encouragement and correction and there will be shared tears and shared joy over the victories, but the responsibility to raise children up in the teaching and the discipline and the instruction, the nurture of the Lord Jesus belongs to parents. If the faith is only delegated to the professionals of the church, it will always be at a greater risk. Please understand that. If the church becomes so programmatic that it's something you take your kids to, they will quickly abandon it. We have the research for it. It becomes like an extracurricular activity. It becomes like a club sport. Something that was meaningful, something that can be looked back on perhaps with fondness, but certainly nothing to shape your whole life, certainly nothing to build your whole life on. What kind of life do you want your children to live when they're your age? That's the dominant question. 
If you want them to be fully formed disciples of Jesus, if you want them to be part of the church, of which, according to 1 Corinthians 12, as people who are saved themselves, they are already members of, you have to envision their life integrated into the body of Christ, not kids dropped off in the cans of experts for two or three hours a week. Let me be really specific, and this is very countercultural. If you want your kids to be dedicated to the church of Jesus for the rest of their life, they need to start participating when they are your children. When do kids drop out of church? Immediately after high school. Why does that happen? Because an American reshaping of the Christian life in the church has relegated the youth group or the Sunday school class or those activities as a helpful extracurricular. And if you only invest your children in children's ministry and student ministry, here's the point, parents, when their high school graduates, they graduate out of church. Their church disbands upon graduation because their high school classmates scatter to jobs, to colleges, to marriages, to other part of the country. Their entire church evaporates over the summer after their senior year. And then parents who did nothing purposeful to invest their kids, not only in student ministry, but in the life of the church, are confused and brokenhearted why their children are no longer interested. They can't be interested. The church was never part of their experience. Only their friend group for a few years in that specific age group ministry was part of their life, and that disbanded when we all got out of high school. When we invite you to simple things like mission trips, mission desserts coming up next Sunday at 7 o'clock, that's not only an invitation to parents, that's an invitation to children. That's an invitation to young people to step in, to take part, to join in the life of the whole church. Please do not delegate and relegate the transmission of the Christian faith to of your children to the so-called professionals of the church that will always make them more vulnerable. And here's some good news. You only have to be one step ahead of them to lead them. You only have to be one step ahead of your kids to lead them in the ways of God. It would be better if you were much farther ahead, but good leaders lead from the front. Good leaders lead where they can be seen. Good leaders lead is so close to the troops that they, the troops can watch them endure adversity themselves. What does that look like? If you're reading your Bible and praying yourself and God teaches you something in the morning, share that with your children in the evening meal. You say, well, we don't have any evening meals. Well, start having one. Make a point. Tell the guy at In-N-Out that, that you will eat it in the car and then pull over. And say, son, while we enjoy this magnificent bounty from our good God who put it in the hearts of men to make in and out, can I share something with you that I read in the Bible this morning? He'll say, holy smokes, dad's reading the Bible. That's amazing. And you share something with him about it. One step ahead, one day at a time, week after week, year after year, a lifetime of character, a lifetime of godliness is formed. Second idea, read and listen a lot and get mentored by other godly parents. In Paul's letter to Titus, he said that he wanted the older women to teach the younger women. 
parenting and marriage is very much a community effort. Families are individual and have individual responsibilities, but God placed us in the church not only as individuals but as families so that we could have mutual encouragement. Let me give you a preview of something that's coming. We're soon going to launch a ministry I'm calling Crosspoint Equip, and that's going to be a series of talks on about critical ideas and trends and controversies that are roiling our culture and changing it. We're also going to start some groups for both marriage and parenting. It dawned on me, again, I'm really not the sharpest knife in the drawer, it dawned on me that through the gifts of some really amazing people, we've built a lot of things to counsel and to encourage and to guide people after loss, after discouragement, and through hard times. We're weaker on the positive side of positively investing in marriage, in family, in parenting before trouble comes. Those days are coming. Just hang in there. A third idea and a final one. You not only need to live the faith and transmit the faith. In other words, you need to be the kind of disciple you want them to be. You need to model both privately and publicly the kind of life that Jesus is building in you. And if you're well behind on that curve, if you're well behind the curve on that one, that's okay. Start where you are. No shame, no guilt, just new resolve. You text me or email me this afternoon, I'll give you resources, I'll give you encouragement. I've had a wonderful week this week talking to people who are waking up to the responsibilities they now have in life. There's nothing that I enjoy more when someone says, I realize I'm behind, I have a gap, can you help me? I'm delighted to do so. Because the few hours that I invest in you, if God, the Spirit of God uses our little time together, the book I give you, the conversation we have, and you take that home, that can change your whole life, not because of anything I've said, but because I've just pointed you to Jesus. You've lived the faith. You've transmitted the faith into your children. You've embraced the responsibility as your own. And thirdly, all of you will need, and I have, a time will come when you need to defend the faith. And here's the attitudinal adjustment. You welcome conversations about their doubts. Listen, you don't shut them down. They ask about the existence of God. You don't say, well, after all these years, I can see I've raised a heretic. No, listen. You don't understand the stew they're in all day. You don't understand how godless, how contrary all the influences in their lives are. There's scarcely a place to look in our culture anymore for a positive example Social media, we now have it through literally secular atheistic researchers have told us social media is destructive to young people, particularly to young girls. It does enormous harm to their self-image, their concept of self and the concept of how they view their own bodies. TikTok is massively influential. We have the research, and I've personally asked younger people who work with people that are younger still, what's the most influential thing? What is shaping people's worldviews and interests? TikTok is the number one answer and sometimes the only answer. It's natural then that there will be doubts. And if they've shared those doubts and objections with you, listen, you're privileged. They're talking to you about it. 
That's a sign of trust. That's a sign of love. Maybe you have an answer. If you clam up or give them a trite answer and send them home and say, we don't talk about these kinds of things, lesson learned, they'll never bring it up again. They'll return to that godless environment and allow discipleship to flow through those relationships and those videos rather than from you, which is contrary to God's design. So, parents, please listen. Don't lecture. Attention is the most important currency in the 21st century. It's not money. It's attention. Social media has shaped all of our hearts and brains because, specifically because, people sometimes with extraordinary budgets and production values want the eyes, ears, and eventually the hearts of the people who are listening to those videos. They want the clicks. They want the attention. So, when you listen, you're communicating love in a way that no one can, and especially social media. Social media isn't about listening. Social media is about talking and broadcasting and putting yourself and your brand out there. When you reverse that and do the loving thing and listen to people, and if this all sounds very contrary to the gospel, I want you to go back and read the gospels and pay attention to not only what Jesus taught, but how carefully he listened to people. How many questions he asked. Jesus never asked a question because he didn't know the answer. John 2 says that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in the heart of mankind. Jesus knows everything from the beginning. Why does he ask a question? Because he honors the person behind him and he draws out their own understanding. Sometimes the discovery that they make through answering Jesus' question is painful to them, but it's all intended to bring them back to the Lord. So you listen, you don't lecture. And if you don't know, here's an idea, it's truthful, it's biblical, seems sensible, say so. Just tell them, I don't know. Do you, folks... I'm a senior pastor. I've been in ministry for quite a while. Do you know how often I'm asked a question that I don't have the answer to? It happens almost every week. You ask amazing questions. I realized the other day I was holding my breath checking my email. Have you noticed that, the, that you do this? It's called email apnea, okay? Seriously, <laughs> look it up, not right now. I went through a season where you as a congregation were asking such amazing questions that I was a little apprehensive just wondering what's next. That's okay. That's how we all learn. If sometimes I pause in giving you an answer, there's a good reason for that. I don't know what to tell you. I'm researching. I'm asking wiser, better, far more educated people than myself. If you don't know, say so, but by all means, welcome the conversation and keep it going. Finally, and this is very important, pay very close attention to their influences online and in the real world and their personal friends. Return with me to Proverbs 13.20 because that's all I'm doing. I'm explaining and applying in 21st century Proverbs 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, 
but the companion of fools will, what's it say there? Suffer harm. A stronger Bible translation says be destroyed. That is a common place, easily seen, divine piece of truth. As an old American saying says, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. As someone said, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And that very well may be a digital person that they've never met in the real world who through teaching, through influence, through fashion, through style, through vibe is reaching and reshaping the way your student, the way your child thinks and feels about the world. Pay very close attention to those influences because those influences work toward greater wisdom and godliness or they set your kids on a path of unknowing destruction. We've lived through this. Did I tell you I raised two boys? We called it in our home, it's a family joke now, we call it the vortex of stupid. The working theory is this. When boys of a certain age, I can't speak to girls, didn't raise girls, only pay attention to my wife, so I'm very much an ignorant man when it comes to girls, but when it comes to boys, there I have some expertise. Having survived boyhood and raised two boys to manhood, the working theory is this regarding the vortex of stupid. When boys of a certain age gather, if you could identify the lowest IQ in the group and then divide that number by the number of boys present, that seems to be what everybody is operating with while they are together. There's a galvanizing effect toward ignorance, toward foolishness, toward not accounting for risk. I'm glad he lived through it, but I'm told one of my sons, who will remain nameless, years and years ago took a penny board, if you don't know what that is, that's a tiny little skateboard to the top of one of the tallest hills in Orange County, and was determined to bomb that hill, to rocket down it on this tiny little skateboard. Of course, you don't wear a helmet. Helmets aren't cool. We don't need helmets, right? Why would we wear a helmet? And just so that we're clear that everybody was really, really tuned into what a bad idea this was, his best friend stood behind him while he stood on the board singing a song entitled, In the Arms of the Angel. When I heard about this, I said, listen, son, if they're singing funeral songs to you as the backdrop to whatever stupid stunt you come up with, reconsider. It's one of our family rules. If what you're beginning to do looks like the start of a YouTube video, reconsider. <laughs> Think about it again. Those influences are quite real. If you don't know who they're being influenced by, you need to find out. You need to listen to their conversations. You need to listen to their sayings and the things they now announce to you as foundational to their lives and ask them, where'd you hear that? Well, there's this guy. Don't freak out. Listening is love. That's what social media is not giving them. Social media is entirely broadcasting. It's all talking. It's all influencing. Nobody's listening. That's where you come in. And if they frighten you so much that you have to leave the room and pray about it and get on Google and do some research, you need to call me or another pastor or another Christian, do that time, but keep listening to those very real influences. That's how you defend the faith and finally always return with them to the foundation, which is Jesus and His Word. Always compare 
Their trendy thoughts, their new influences, their new discoveries always compare them with the character of Jesus and the truthfulness of His Word. Sometimes you're going to find commonality and overlap, and you can affirm those things. There's a lot of people on social media teaching young men to be courageous. Good. Embrace that. But tell them that the truest and best courage that has best been exemplified in this world comes from the Lord Jesus Himself that we can take these earthly expressions of courage or self-sacrifice or love or a good work ethic or a gracious spirit, we can take those as reflections of the character of Christ Himself, always bring them back to the foundation of Jesus and His Word. Parents, we don't have long. None of us know how long we have. We know we've been given a sacred trust for a brief time to bring up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So let's get started and entrust into the Lord's hands our children because He was the one who gave us our children in the first place and He has the best plan of all for them. Let's pray together.